listening to the Pocket Hole Podcast with your host, PDF Pocket Hole. We're broadcasting to you today from a virtual reality simulation of Ted Sabley's spare bedroom. That's right, former touring keyboardist for the killers, Ted Sabley. This is simply a virtual recreation of Sabley's spare bedroom. He is currently at home in his real house, making his own bread with yogurt and oats. Welcome to the Pocket Hole Podcast. Sound waves, pocket thoughts in the brains of a human population. Welcome to the Pocket Hole Podcast. Your whole inhalation of good vibrations and information. So, there was this episode of South Park a couple of years ago where they revealed that Slash, the guitarist from Guns N' Roses, isn't real. Kids are supposed to stop believing in Slash when they get old enough to know better. That's the premise of the show. It's a totally absurd concept. Or is it? We all know Slash is real. Because we saw him on TV. Isn't that the same TV where we see a sponge who works in a fast food restaurant? Or a yellow man who has a crayon in his brain and goes to space? Regardless of whether or not he's real though, Slash's music is very popular. It, does, it doesn't matter to his fans if they've seen him in real life or if that's even his real name. It doesn't even matter if that's really him playing guitar on all those albums. They like the idea of Slash. My point is museum, uh, museums... Musicians and artists aren't beloved by their fans because of who they are. It's because of why they are. We, as an audience, relate to the ideas of the performer, not the performer themselves. And what we're really admiring is whatever makes them do what they do. What they do is a product of their passion, and it's the passion that we adore. It's an easy misconception to have, but we don't love Slash as a person. We love the ideas that come from Slash. For the vast majority of famous bands and artists, it's a group of people, or one single person, who puts themselves out there and says, yep, hello, I'm the person who made this. And then we go see them to perform it live. We watch their interviews and we follow them on Instagram. The face of the performer becomes synonymous with the music. It's this logic that makes people so mad when they find out that an artist is lip-syncing their songs live. It's different if you pay to see a magician where you expect to be tricked, but the music industry is based around this idea of passion and authenticity, and we like to look at these people and have empathy for that passion and authenticity. There's a lot of bands out there who, uh, well not a lot of bands, but say for example, I don't really like Mac DeMarco that much, but I, I do quite like him, his personality, and I look at interviews with him and, I don't know, the guy seems really cool, but I just can't really get into his music, but I keep listening to it anyway because I just, I sense the passion in it. Although having said that, I wasn't really mad on his last two albums. I didn't, I didn't feel the passion. But my point is, we empathize with the performer to such an extent that it almost overrides the actual quality of the music. So my burning question today is this. Would we still like our favorite music 
if it was made by something that wasn't human. Now, when you hear the term virtual band, what comes to mind? For the average music listener, I'd say it's probably gorillas. Nearly 20 years ago, Jesus. And you'd be forgiven for thinking that gorillas were the first virtual band, considering they came on the scene around 2000, you know, during the birth of a technological era. Seems like an appropriate time for the first virtual band to come out. But a virtual band isn't necessarily a band depicted by cartoons. It's any group whose members are not depicted as human musicians, essentially. The official definition is a band that's depicted by cartoons, but I disagree, and I'll give you very good reasons why. To me, the first virtual band technically dates back to 1958. I say technically because the term certainly wasn't coined until much later, but in 1958, Dave Seville and the Chipmunks, or later known as Alvin and the Chipmunks, they made their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show way back in 58 as three Chipmunks and their father-slash-manager, Dave Seville. And yes, it was explicitly stated that this man's seed somehow birthed three Chipmunk puppet babies and coerced them into a family band. But details like this are quickly overlooked when their creatively titled hit single, The Chipmunk Song, was released, thus changing the world of music and performance forever. David Seville and his chipmunks. Ready to sing your song? Okay, Simon? Okay, Theodore? Okay, Alvin? Alvin? Dave Seville was the leader of the pack, but Alvin the Chipmunk eventually became the face of the group. I suppose the original idea was that, you know, you would empathise with Dave Seville as a performer, the human man, but uh, weirdly people started empathising with Alvin, which seems counterintuitive because he's not human, he's a puppet. But anyway, Dave Seville was the moniker of Ross Bagdasarian Sr., and it might sound like I'm goofing on him, saying that he gave birth to three rodents, but this guy's a fucking genius. The early chipmunk stuff still holds up to me. Like, I think it's pretty tasteful. And the man won two Grammys, two Grammys the following year for his innovation in sound engineering. On the Ed Sullivan show, where it was first performed, he would interact with these three chipmunk puppets with a bit of banter before they sing their tune. And it was all made with a pre-recorded track of Ross Bagdasarian Sr. singing. And then he would speed up that track to make the vocals high-pitched. That's how they get the chipmunk vocals. And naturally, as with everything good, the copycats were quick to come in 
and a group known as the Nutty Squirrels had a hit called Uh Oh soon after. Their take on this very new chipmunk style was a different beast. I don't think they quite had the innovation that uh, Bagdasarian Senior did, but it wasn't bad. They incorporated some high-pitched, pretty indecipherable vocals with a jazz instrumental. And this came around on a Frank Sinatra TV special, in which a group of female dancers had choreographed a routine to the song. It's pretty special, but this was the only real success that the Nutty Squirrels had. So uh, it's kind of it gets it gets a bit hazy around that time because of course everyone's trying to copy the Alvin and the Chipmunks thing, but I'd say the Naughty Squirrels were probably the second virtual band. Now you might be aware of the phenomenon of songs being chipmunked, which became especially popular in the nineties and two thousands. Kanye West would uh, he would take soul samples and speed them up so the soul samples they might be around 80 beats per minute and he would speed that up and get these chipmunked high-pitched vocals and then insert them as samples into his songs and reinvent these songs as hip-hop hooks which is a great use of the technique and it was also something that RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan it was pretty famous for but we all know who did it best now I'm being sarcastic by the way when I say this is the best not that this is a bad tune but I don't know I feel Akon kind of unfairly mangled a very sincere ballad this is the original version. It's a 1964 song by Bobby Vinton. And man, I, I don't know, I, I think this is great. I think this song shouldn't have been touched. This is the original Mr. Lonely. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. I have nobody for my So that's the idea of speeding up vocals to create a high-pitched melody. It's, uh, it's not very revolutionary now, but at the time it won two goddamn Grammys, so it's, it's a major technological advancement. So let's take it back to 1959. What happened after the first virtual band? Well, when Bagdasarian Sr. won his Grammys, it was just on the cusp of a musical enlightenment. Because in the 1960s, shit was about to get real. The Beatles released their first two albums in 1963, and of course this inspired a new age of music. The technology used for Alvin and the Chipmunks was groundbreaking, but it, it was a bit of a novelty. It didn't change the way people wanted music to be made. It was just something neat to see on television, or maybe even buying a novelty record. <laughs> 
music wasn't taken seriously until the Beatles came along and they inspired a generation to actually buy records instead of listening to whatever their parents owned. When the Beach Boys released Pet Sounds in 1966, I'm a big fan of the Beach Boys and I'm saying it right here, right now, on my podcast, Pet Sounds 1966, the definitive moment that music became a serious art form. Because it was one of the first albums, if not the first album, that you can sit down and think about rather than get up and dance to. Lyrics were sad now and instruments no longer belong to a genre. You can have classical music and theremins in a rock song and there was just nothing anyone could do. And again, it might be hard to think about now, but before this, music wasn't sad. That song, God Only Knows What I'd Be Without You, it sounded like a suicide note because songs were like, I want to hold your hand and this was just a bit too much. So uh, music became a, a thinking man's hobby. And now it's a valuable product and musicians were striving to make their product stand out more than the competitors. Sounds were now being made that were once thought of as impossible thanks to tape manipulation and experimentation with rec the recording studio. So as sound developed, so did the way music was presented. And in response to Pet Sounds, the Beatles created Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was a concept album and also one of the first fully realized virtual bands. In this concept album, the Beatles themselves assumed the form of this Lonely Hearts Club band. Each member of the Beatles had a pseudonym and their album was designed to be a sort of live performance in a package from this fictional band. And I'm doing a lot of air quotes with my fingers when I say that but don't really know why because that's what it was. You're not buying a Beatles album, you're buying Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band and in theory they're performing for you in record form instead of in a concert because this band doesn't exist in real life. So yeah, the end of the 60s was getting pretty conceptual and all of the rules were being beaten mercilessly with the leather belt of postmodernism. The act to take virtual bands to the next level though, it went from the Beatles to the Archies in 1968. The Archies was a cartoon which was very popular with the kids in 1968. The Archies performed songs in their show such as Sugar Sugar. And now the Riverdale Carnival presents the Archies. Take care of the kissing booth while we're singing, Sabrina. Okay, everybody, here we go with our new hit record, Sugar Sugar. The idea was that the Archies exist outside the constraints of a 22 minute cartoon. All of the characters would sing on the songs, although their singing voices were pretty fucking far from their spoken voices in the show. 
and all the credits for instrumentation went to the fictional family as well. Which is a pretty nice idea and a pretty solid attempt at an animated band, 30 years before the Gorillas released their first track. The Archies were the original Gorillas. There you go. You can spray that on a toilet door somewhere. Because it's the same concept. It's a cartoon band with real people, but all of the actual music being made is credited to people that don't exist. Yeah, t tell people that. Go, go to the smoking area of the Workman's Club and you can sound like a prize-winning prick by telling people the Archies were the original gorillas. So, the Archies released albums and continued trying to squeeze out singles for a pretty short period from 1968 to 1972. They were the first virtual band to appear in worldwide pop charts and they were actually they were a pioneer of bubblegum pop as a genre, which is a fairly decent accolade for a couple of cartoons. Again, they were labelled as a gimmick and the novelty fizzled out pretty fast. So throughout the rest of the 70s and 80s, virtual bands would kind of come and go. Nothing really stuck and for the most part it was just accepted now that music could be performed by humans pretending to be puppets or cartoons. The Muppet Show famously had a live band of puppets called Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, which is one of the best names. It's, it's the best name for a virtual band. Definitely. Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. But, the, you know, by this time the Muppet Show is kind of normal. Definitely not the same effect that Alvin and Chipmunks would have had. Here's something I think is just lost in the annals of time. I, I've never heard of people talking about this, but it's definitely very famous. There was a band of human raisins, human raisins, called the California Raisins in the 1980s. And they were in an ad for the sun-made brand of raisins. The ad is claymation of these grotesque raisin characters who would sing Marvin Gaye's Heard It Through the Grapevine right before a clay man eats them. Ah, it's, it's horrific, it's fucking weird. The lads who made the ad were genuinely surprised that people loved it, which I think is hilarious. And I'm also surprised people loved it, because it's something that Tim Burton would have a nightmare about. And this, these California Raisins released four albums in two years and spawned an animated TV show. And in case you think you aren't following what I'm saying here, Raisins Made of Clay had a successful music career based off of an advert that they appeared in. And a mockumentary movie of their rise to fame followed shortly after on VHS. I, f I just find it unsettling that we're not acknowledging this every single day of our lives. It's bizarre that this just happens in the history of humanity. They had California Raisins merchandise of every conceivable object. I'm talking lunchboxes, posters, pants, bedsheets, Halloween costumes, pencils. They had a fan club and posted monthly newsletters. Their, their albums are displayed in the Smithsonian Museums in the US. And... I'm not saying they shouldn't be, by the way. I love that they are. 
this is art. I just think it's wrong that we don't acknowledge the absurdity of life in every sentence that we speak. So, the California raisins were all dried up by the end of the 80s. Ha! There's a, there's a bit of raisin humor for you there, folks. They were dried up, and it seemed through the 90s that people were too busy listening to grunge and buying computers to get a good virtual band going again. And there's not much of note until 1998, when Blur frontman Damon Alburn got together with Jamie Hewlett, the comic book artist, to create Gorillaz. They also had Dan the Automator producing, who was already well established as a concept artist as Deltron 3030. Gorillaz are the artificial face of the virtual band concept. The Guinness World Book of Records crowned them most successful virtual band back in 2001, and no one has even come close to that spot, and it's unlikely anyone ever will. They defined what a virtual band is, and it makes perfect sense. It's the start of a new era of technology, and three acclaimed artists in their own right take the reins on this concept that had already been ahead of its time. Now they have the actual technology to push it to its logical conclusion. So the success lies in the fact that the band weren't seen as a novelty act. There was substance to their work, and they had countless hits behind them already. Now gorillas have even more countless hits, and the virtual band aspect is now at this point is not even what you think of when you think of gorillas because of how successful they are. And this is what pushes the idea of a virtual band into acceptance in the mainstream. But having said that, the original principles of a virtual band have been totally flipped. Because it started out with the ingenious sound engineering. That's where it all started with Dave Seville and the Chipmunks, but Soon, the high-pitched vocals and creative audio engineering was shunned in favour of visual aesthetics to aid pop music. And at this stage, Gorillaz is just a band making music who happened to be portrayed by cartoons. That's fine, but if, if we're talking about virtual bands here, I want to talk about the most virtual band there is. 2007 is the year that I would consider the first real, real virtual artist to emerge. Gorillaz may have done it best, but at the end of the day, they were humans making pop music. Hatsune Miku is where the logical conclusion of the idea lies. She has all the elements of a fully-fledged virtual artist. Hatsune Miku is essentially an anime character whose voice is comprised of vocal samples spliced together very meticulously with a live band playing beneath. And yes, it's Japanese. <laughs> Let's start with how it sounds and then we'll talk about Hatsune herself and the live performance. Yamaha is a massive Japanese company that manufacture musical instruments, amongst other things, but they're known for their keyboards mostly. They made a software called the Vocaloid, which pieces together pre-recorded vocals 
ripe for manipulation. There's an abundance of controls so you can change the pitch, volume, velocity, intonation. You can manipulate pretty much every aspect of how these words are being sung. But it wasn't until the Vocaloid 2 came about in 2007 that the idea of Hatsune Miku came about. So basically they got a female voice actress from Japan to record thousands of thousands I don't even tens of thousands but she records loads and loads and loads of words every single fucking word in the dictionary and then so you can chop them and change them as as you please right Krypton Future Media are the folks who made this stuff and their name is also perfect for this dystopian robo fuckery Krypton Future Media and they're not evil as far as I'm aware for the Vocaloid 2, they decided to get one Japanese voice actress to do vocals for a cute girl template. And their angle was to not sell the software, but sell the cute girl herself. In the same way that, you know, Slash's product is the music, but you put Slash's name and face on it and it's gonna sell. So they're trying to sell the, the person behind the music. So you would essentially be buying a singer in a box with a cute 16-year-old Japanese girl on the cover known as Hatsune Miku. And you can make Hatsune Miku sing whatever you want instead of just advertising as having some random fucking voice sing whatever you want. And also this is all in Japanese. So as you can imagine, Japan fucking loves this and it sold 40,000 units in around a year, which is averaging 300 units per week at the time when it comes out, which is a lot for a software just for making vocals, you know? That's, that's a lot of people. Hatsune Miku, the name itself comes from three Japanese words. Hatsu, which means first, ne, which means sound, and Miku, which means future. She was the first of Krypton Future Media's characters, so naturally she's known as the first sound of the future. Ominous and terrifying, yes. But pretty catchy, pretty catchy name. First sound of the future, Hatsune Miku, coming to you live from the future. Here's a sample of what she sounds like. And the thing is, anyone can make a song with Hatsune Miku if they have the software. So it's not like gorillas who always have Damon Albarn pulling the strings. Hatsune Miku is a genuine virtual artist who lives as a digital entity. Technically it's a combination of sounds a voice actress made, but to be honest it goes so far beyond that so quickly. It depends how technical you want to get, but with the amount of processing done to that voice, it's, it's not a human anymore, it's a goddamn robot. She's estimated to have sang on over 100,000 songs as of 2017, including a song by Pharrell Williams, 
the thing about her is that once you buy the software, you can use her sound and image as you please. So if you want to make a live show of her, you can do that. It'll be under her name and brand though. So if you're making music with her voice and her image, it's under her name and her image. So technically she's living as an artist with hundreds of thousands of different contributors making the music, but all the credit goes to her. Similar to the Archies thing. The Archies are the band, the cartoons. You know, not the people who are actually making the music behind the scenes. So the fame and recognition will inevitably go to her, even though thousands of different people are making the actual songs. I'd I'd love I'd love for there to be a version of this with the famous singers like Frank Sinatra. Just get Frank Sinatra or Julian Casablancas of the Strokes to record hundreds of thousands of words and manipulate it to your will. I mean, I'd say that would sell. But there's there's probably legal stuff with that. Anyway, Hatsune Miku's first show was in 2009 at an anime festival where she was projected onto a giant screen dancing and singing to a live band. And since then she's appeared as a hologram. This was 10 years ago as well. So I'm willing to bet that it either has or will get more insane. And if, if you look at some videos of her live performance, you'll see the crowds in Japan go absolutely nuts for this. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> I'm glad they're having fun, but it does make you question if you've been on the internet too long. I mean, yeah, when I found this, it was like two o'clock in the morning. I've been on like a YouTube hole and I find a, a, a serious, uh, not even a subculture, a fully-fledged culture of grown adults worshipping this hologram of a 16-year-old girl who exists through the minds of 100,000 people. <laughs> and I thought the California Raisins thing was weird. And I tell you who doesn't go mad for Hatsune Miku is David Letterman. She appears in her holographic school uniform on David Letterman's show and his reaction is priceless. <laughs> I don't think I even need to describe how a seven-year-old talk show host would react to a hologram of a teenage Japanese girl. It's entirely predictable. The way I would describe it is that imagine David Letterman at his niece's sixth, sixth birthday. One of her friends recognizes him from the TV. So David sheepishly smiles and waves at her desperately wanting the facade to end so he can go back to drinking whiskey. You would think in our current year that virtual bands would be numerous, but I assume at this stage everything is so digitalized and artificial that it's no longer a concept that can be explored in such a creative way. Now that we have virtual reality in our homes and a hologram of prints selling at stadiums, Suddenly, the crazy frog just doesn't seem so crazy. Futuristic ways of presenting music was a great novelty, but now it's just standard in ways. And obviously, if you're a fan of the, the music and the videos that I make, you'll know how I feel about that. 
I incorporate elements of modern technology and artificial sounds in absolutely everything I make and I love it and I, I want to see this I want to see audio engineering being a feature of music and I want to see people pushing the boundaries of what sound can be you know if you can think of it someone's probably trying to do it two things of note though just to round this off are Frank Zappa and Poppy Frank Zappa was so many years ahead of his time that he recorded a concert before he died specifically to be used for when holographic technology becomes available. The guy died in 1993. So he recorded this concert pre-1993 expecting it to be holographic technology. And that is actually becoming a reality now if his sons can stop with the legal bullshit. So there will be a Frank Zappa concert. He will come back from the dead as a hologram and not just recreated for a concert, but the, the actual intention he had was for this concert to be made as a hologram. And I almost take back what I said about Hatsune Miku being the first virtual artist because Frank Zappa is literally coming back from the dead as a hologram to play a rock concert. I, I can't believe I'm in a position where I'm trying to decide which is cooler. Finally, uh, on the topic of virtual bands, is Poppy. Poppy is the brainchild of a man called Titanic Sinclair. And I just realised, at this point in the podcast, talking about dead men holograms and the brainchild of a man called Titanic Sinclair. It, it, I mean, this is all real, but it just sounds so bizarre. Okay, so Poppy, her whole shtick is that she's a human robot. The way she talks, the way she walks, acts and looks is artificial. It's almost a reverse virtual band in the sense that she is a real person, but it's like, you know what the uncanny valley is? It's where something is, it looks realistic, but there's something just off about it. You look at a thing and you know if it's human or not. And they had that uh, robot, Sophia, in Saudi Arabia, who was a robot and looked almost human, but there's something just strangely not right about her. Well, this is the opposite, real human who you're not really sure about. And there's no information about this girl, Poppy, uh, other than her existence as Poppy. So on her YouTube channel, they would host online art performances, mysterious little clips of Poppy acting strange and performing pop songs. Titanic Sinclair was previously a musical artist and actually had a project with another girl who's very similar to Poppy. And look, it's, it's just pure entertainment. It's not profoundly deep or philosophical, but it's interesting to note how she's built a fan base by essentially being totally devoid of personality. Her brand is having no empathy or emotion, and that's where the entertainment comes from. It's just a fun little way to show how much you take for granted with what you see. And that's the essence of all these virtual bands. What you're seeing is never what you're really looking at. And on that note, actually, 
it, it's funny in a way that Hatsune Miku is seen as a totally different being to other performers. And don't get me wrong, she is, but she's far from the first artist to present themselves as being non-human. And to go back to my original point of, would we like our favourite artists if they weren't human? Being human doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's just, it's easier to be empathetic with humans than it is anything else. Daft Punk are arguably one of the most successful electronic acts in history, yet we don't know what they look or sound like. We know they're French, and they have a lot of fans and a lot of people who would say, I love Daft Punk. A lot of people would cry if they saw those two masked musicians on a stage, in their masks. They would tell you that they love the humans inside the masks, but that's just not true. The masks are simply a physical symbol in which to point your love at. There's a theory that has a lot of strength behind it that Daft Punk hasn't been the same to people the whole time. In theory, they could swap the people behind the masks and continue as Daft Punk for eternity. And no one would know. They might have a different style of music, but that could just be chalked down to an evolution in sound. And I guarantee a huge amount of people would maintain the fandom, even if their music was shite, just because it's Daft Punk. I mean, Get Lucky is pretty different to their earlier stuff, you know? How do we know that that's not different people? But if your favourite band were to be replaced by different people, you definitely wouldn't listen to them, you know? If, if every single member of your favourite band was changed, you wouldn't listen to them. Or, okay, maybe you would, but it wouldn't be the same band, you know what I mean? And that band would get a lot of hate because we're attached to the image associated with the music that we love. Same way that producers and writers make songs for pop stars like Katy Perry. Katy Perry's fucking shit. And it's her producers and writers that make people love her. She's not a likable person either. It's, it's just the power of putting a face on a product. Oh, well, would you look at that? It appears that I have mail. And I've actually, I've had a few people mailing me on uh, Instagram during the past week, and they've been pretty much asking me about the same thing. The fake celebrity Facebook profile video, which I put up a post during the week saying it's back, and some people didn't know that it was gone, and some people were wondering what happened to it in the first place. Well, to make a long story short, I made a video about me having the same name as a famous person and I therefore become famous by proxy. So I'm walking down the street and people are like, hey, you're that famous guy from TV. And I say, no, it's, it's not me. We're not the same person. We just have the same name. So that character gets killed off in season five. And then I lose my fame and people are sending me messages saying, oh man, sad to hear you're dead. So, in an effort to regain second-hand fame, I create a fake celebrity Facebook profile of Emilio Estevez, and then I bask in my fame, and that's essentially the video. And the joke there is that, okay, first of all, no one on the street would recognize you 
by your name. You know, that's that's the joke that in my head I'm walking down the street and everyone knows who I am, but no, no one knows your name just by looking at you. Okay, so that's a joke. And jokes just aren't funny when you have to explain them, but here I am, I have to explain it. So the, the whole joke is that my character is delusional and his idea of fame is like the most insignificant and most desperate attempt at fame possible. Literally just stealing it off other people. So there's a little sequence in it where I make, in, in real life, I make fake celebrity Facebook profiles of celebrities in Ireland. And I'm using the word celebrity pretty loosely here, but yeah. So then they message me in the video and they're saying, hey, I'm such a big fan of you. And the irony is that these people are actually famous in real life and all I care about is getting appraisal from people and I don't care about the fact that they're celebrities, like that never occurs to me. But yeah, the joke being that celebrities are messaging this fake celebrity Facebook profile. It's just a small little easter egg type thing. It's really nothing to think about, I don't think... I don't, I don't think anyone really noticed that that little detail or really took it into account. Except for one person! And that person was one of the people who I used. I used their image as uh, one of the fake celebrities. So, I made that video months and months ago. Many months ago. Nearly a year, actually. Jesus. But all of the celebrities that I use in the video are people who I somewhat know. And my thinking was that they'd see the video and think, Oh, haha, I'm in this class. But a lot of time passed and I soon forgot to actually tell them that they were going to be in it or to ask their permission. So before I put it out, I showed it to Junior Brother and I was like, oh fuck, oh, you're in this, I totally forgot, is that alright? Like, that might be kind of weird. And he said, nah, that's grand, Like, I think it's gas. So I thought, okay, uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. Then I put out the video. And no less than a week later, I'm getting very angry messages from one of these minor celebrities. Actually, no, that's not true. I didn't get an angry message. I got a phone call from a friend telling me that this person just called them and asked me to take down the video because their image was in it. So I felt really bad. Like, I put that in because I wanted to pay homage to this person and... And they obviously weren't happy with it, so I, I really, I don't want them to be in the video if, if they don't want to be in it. That wasn't the intention at all. The video is fun, it's silly, and it's not to be taken too seriously, you know, it's, it's a joke at my expense. It's not supposed to make anyone else feel bad. But it did, so I thought, ah shit. I took it down and I censored it, and then I put it back up. And I sent a message to the person saying, hey, I'm really sincerely sorry. It was meant to be a, a joke, you know, for you, not about you or against you. And I got very angry messages saying, take that down now. You don't have permission to use my image. It's creepy. And uh, this is a quote. It's stalkerish. It terrified me. And quite frankly, I'm scared. So... I didn't know how to feel about that, exactly. 
I get not wanting to have your image in it. I thought maybe it was a branding thing. But they basically said, no, this scared me. I'm creeped out now. They called me a stalker. They said it was weird and they don't want to be associated with me. And, you know, they could have just lied and said it was a branding thing. I, I would have appreciated that because I, I, I can understand that. But saying it's weird and creepy and stalkerish and illegal, like, come on. That's a bit of an insult, is it not? I mean, it's just a silly little video. And also, they're on screen for a total of about 15 seconds, maybe. And the picture itself has a different name attached to it. And it's pretty... Pretty hard to decipher who this person is from the images that it's in. So I censored it, but I didn't censor like the little images, tiny little images in the corner. And I got another message saying like, You didn't even censor it properly. Like what the fuck, what's wrong with you? Like take that down completely or I'll have it removed. And then I started getting hate comments on Instagram from their friends. And I don't, I don't even know who they are, but... One of them was world champion boxer Kelly Harrington. <laughs> I thought that was mad. Like, what's Kelly Harrington doing on my fucking Instagram page? And Kelly Harrington sending me things saying, you're a creep, like using people's images without permission. Just sending me loads and loads of hate and other people who I don't know, but another, another boxer of some sort. Boxer, world champion boxer sending me hate on Instagram, like... That's that's inspiration for a song, if anything. Like that's that's fascinating, and uh, quite frankly, I I think that's quite funny. But yeah, like what the hell? Don't send your army of people after me. And then I was getting messages from people we know, like mutually, saying, "Hey, what the fuck? Like, what's wrong with you?" And like people unfollowing me on Instagram and shit. Ah, come on, like taking yourself way too seriously here. So I took it down, I apologised straight away, I uh, put it back up censored. I feel like I did everything a, a normal, rational and compassionate person would do. But the whole time I was just getting angry messages of hate, publicly and privately. And I thought, fuck this. Fuck this. I was nice about it and in fact the whole intention of it in the first place was to be nice, to be like hey, let's enjoy this thing together, you know? This person was really supportive with the whole PDF pocket hole stuff. But uh, yeah, it turns out they were kind of just supportive in a way that's like, yeah, that's great that you're doing that, but don't ever tell anyone that we know each other, you know? Like, yeah, I really like your stuff, but in private, you know? I, I wouldn't tell anyone I like that. But to come straight out and be like, I just don't want people to think we know each other. Fuck you. <laughs> you seriously gone so up your own hole that I don't I don't even I honestly don't really even know what the rationale is, but the main point being they were extremely rude about it. So yeah, I put it back up, censored for the most part. Not entirely, because you know that YouTube censoring thing that they have, it's it's pretty fucking hard to use. So yeah, it's not entirely censored, so I'm not saying that you can decipher who it is from the video, but I'm not saying that you can't either. But main point being, just like, you know, manners cost nothing. They cost nothing. Manners are free. 
And if you want someone to do something for you with no benefit to the person themselves, here's a tip. Ask them nicely. And and if it's me, I would definitely oblige. In fact, I've already done it before you even asked. But if you go telling somebody, hey, do this for me now or I will remove you. I'll remove you from the internet. That is not the way to get what you want. So that's all I'll say about that, really. Weekly Wacky Track Collage It's time for the Weekly Wacky Track Collage, a segment that I look forward to very, very much. So basically, I get you to send me in a piece of audio. It can be online in a personal message, but what I would prefer is if you send me a message on WhatsApp. My phone number is this. It's plus three five three eight nine four nine one seven one four six. And you can send me a message of your voice. You can send a voice recording. You can send me a link to a YouTube video, whatever it is. And I'll make a song out of it. In the first episode, I did one based on a speech by Steve Jobs. This week, someone sent in uh, an audio of Father Ted. And so I'm going to play you out with the little remix that I did that I had a lot of fun with. It's the weekly Wacky Track Collage. And thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you all so much. I'm actually kind of shocked at the amount of people who are listening so far. I didn't expect that. And it's really, really, really nice to have you. But without shiting on too much, here is I Hear You're Racist Now, Father. Hello there, Father. <laughs> Hello, Colm. <laughs> Out and about. And, 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 and. Good, good. I hear you're a racist now, Father. Vibrations and an